Hello and welcome to the Trap One Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be back to 1963, to the very second story of the show, and to its reinvigoration as a Technicolor marvel for the 60th anniversary. Yes, we'll be talking about the Daleks in colour. Joining me today are Adam. Hiya, good to be here, and I'm wearing a bright pink cardigan to um, celebrate what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And US Jason. And I have set my computer to monochrome, and I am recording with Smudge, my monochrome black and white cat, to get myself in a 1963 mood. It's not a podcast without Smudge joining us, is it? She is always right underneath me, next to the microphone, staring into the screen. Cannot do a podcast without her. I think she thinks that she has the podcasting empire and not me. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, right, so before we get into, obviously, you know, the, the new version, I uh, just want to obviously get your thoughts on, obviously, you know, uh, are we of the, the club that uh, recognised the second ever Doctor Who story? as the absolute classic and uh, the recognition that obviously if that hadn't been broadcast and gone out and been as successful as it was, we probably wouldn't be doing this podcast here today. So what are your thoughts on uh, the Daleks and the original version broadcast in 1963, Adam? Well, I mean, obviously I recognise its importance. And like you say, if it hadn't, it is... Yeah, it is the reason we're all here now. It's the reason the show continued without the Daleks. Who knows how long the show would have run for. As a story in itself, I think it's a very strong first couple of episodes. And then it's a lot of wandering through caves and trying to jump over chasms. Um, It's not my favorite Dalek story or even my go-to. But, you know, it has... It has its moments that have a, a strong iconic power that still kind of haunt the series today. So, like I say, it's not it's not my go to Hartnell story and it's not my go to Dalek story, but it is a you know in in dot two terms, it's a powerful piece of work, regardless of its yeah. flaws. Uh, what about you, uh, as our resident uh, William Hartnell number one fan, Jason? Uh, what about you? When I first made my all-time Doctor Who top 10 list, when I was posting on Rec Arts Doctor Who in the 90s, the original Dalek story was in my top 10. Now, this past summer, when I was pitching the Doctor Who 6460 panel at the LI Who convention in suburban New York, I decided to create my own top 60 list for the 60th anniversary. The Daleks is not on it. There are four other stories with the word Daleks in the title that are are in my top 60. But at some point, some stories have to stand in for others. I can't put every single historical in my top 60, even though I probably could if I thought about it. I wasn't going to put every single Dalek story in my top 60. So I really had to choose the best of the best in each category. The Daleks is very good for its era, and it is groundbreaking in a lot of ways. And the fact that you start off with characters wandering around a spooky jungle set that is shot in negative to give it an extra ashy feel, and then you move on to this three-part psychological story where they're locked in a prison cell for three weeks, which is a great way of saving on the budget when your budget is 
1,400 pounds for every seven days. <laughs> and then, you know, are these creatures reliable? Are they going to betray us? And then it becomes an ethics debate, and then it becomes an adventure story. And I've seen Flash Gordon used derogatorily to describe episodes five and six, and then episode seven becomes this full-on battle royal. I think the Daleks really holds up very well. It's just that later writers are able to build on the themes of the first story, and the Daleks are kind of a non-factor in this one. They stand around. They talk to each other. We don't really see 12 of them pouring down a London sidewalk, raining fire. We don't see a special weapons Dalek. Because this is the second serial the show ever did, and it's the first time out, they didn't quite know what they had. They knew they were doing a Nazi allegory. There are other stories that have done the same tale better, and the Daleks have been better used and better written, especially once David Whitaker comes on the scene or uh, Ben Aronovich. So again, this is not one of my top 60. I don't think it's the greatest Doctor Who of all time, but I think it's remarkably good and it's very important. And if you if you were to do the top 60 most important Doctor Who stories rather than the 60 best, this is easily one of the top five. No, oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. I thought you were going to do a bait and switch there when you said it wasn't included in your top 60 last year because you actually refer it to The Mutants, its original title, rather than The Daleks. <laughs> <laughs> and just to be clear, The Mutants is not in my top 60 either. So, yes, <laughs> good guess. That's understandable. That's understandable. It's, it's an okay story, isn't it? So, obviously, yeah, I mean, I, 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 it wouldn't be personally my go-to Dalek story either. But um, I do think it, it, it is. It sets out the, the parameters of what the show can do, and uh, Terry Nation writes an absolutely brilliant, like kind of like boys' own adventure, uh, kind of like serial, and it kind of like it sets the the pattern for you know the show going forward uh, to a certain extent. And then obviously he kind of like reinvents the kind of like the the show again when he uh, writes the Dalek invasion of earth, which I think is obviously probably a, b- a better story than this one, but you can't obviously deny the, the importance of, of the very first Dalek story. So given its place in Dr. Who canon, obviously I think what they were trying to do for uh, this is reimagine the episodes for a younger generation or for today's television, and I think that's probably the the reason of why they've gone for the, the colorization, isn't it, and the cut-down um, element of it. So they've taken what is essentially seven 25-minute episodes. They've edited it down to a very, very brief 75 minutes. They've obviously done colorization to it. There's some new CG elements in there. They brought back Nick Briggs and uh, brought out of retirement um, David Graham, who is 98, um, to redo a couple of Dalek uh, voices in it. And then they've presented it as a whole episode, as in this is what it would look like uh, if it was broadcast today. So uh, we'll touch upon the, obviously, the pros and cons of colorization um, a little bit later on. But what did we think of the actual cut-down version of the story, Um, Jason? In short, and I'll elaborate on this over the rest of the hour, I think it's a brilliant idea, brilliantly executed. 
I love the language of black and white TV, all right? I'm a product of the early 70s. I grew up with a black and white TV in my bedroom until 1984. When you were watching reruns of movies on a Saturday afternoon in the late 70s or 80s, you were as likely to see a black and white rerun as a color one. Now it doesn't work that way anymore. My kids' generation does not appreciate black and white. They are disconcerted by it. And they have a hard time following the story visually, taking my kid as a representative sample of every 13-year-old across America. But I think it's, it's a fair statement. Also, you have to deal with the pace. Doctor Who was not a Netflix series where every hour is action-packed. It was a serial, and you weren't meant to watch every week. There's no VCRs. There's no reruns. If you are out of town or if there's a power outage or what have you, you're going to miss an episode Five minutes out of every 25 recaps what happened last week. And then, of course, you have the fact that it's shot live to tape, so you have a limited number of sets and a limited number of special effects. If you are watching The Last of Us and you immediately turn on Doctor Who and the Daleks and you try and watch it in movie format, you are going to fall asleep before you get to the what would be the episode two cliffhanger. TV just isn't made that way anymore. Doctor Who is now a living, breathing pulsating thing with Shudi Gatwa, you have a new doctor who has more followers on Instagram than the number of people who watched Legend of the Sea Devils. This is a young, (laughs) brand new audience. And this is why if you're going to show the Daleks, and it's important to show it because this is the Daleks' very first story. They're still very much contractually a part of the show. You need to do something so that a modern generation that doesn't have the benefit of our wisdom and love for all things past is going to get into it. So I can quibble with some of the edits. I can quibble with some of the design choices. I think as a 70-minute movie in modern editing and with rewritten dialogue and with – even though the color is a little misty, it's still recognizably in color. I think it is a brilliant idea and I would love to see them do this with some other longer stories. Can you imagine the war games in color? cut down to 75 or 90 minutes. I mean, I hope this is the way for the future. Adam? Yeah, um, I think you and I have slightly different takes on it in that I thought it was an interesting idea, an interesting thought experiment, but I felt what we got showed the limits of what it can do. Um, Because, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, when I was getting into Doctor Who in the 90s, you know, uh, the the Hartnell era was, was 30 years old, but I'd grown up with... TV repeats and black and white, so I wasn't as alien, you know. But somebody who's just watched, say, Church on Ruby Road for the first time, and then goes to watch, you know, episode one of of the of uh, the Daleks, that's you know, that's sixty years. That's almost it's almost impossible to imagine how, what they make of it. And you know, it's worth saying whatever I say now, I am not the target audience for this. But I, as watching it the second time this morning what really struck me was it starts off i think it starts off well i think you know the first it's a bit like the act how i find the whole full black and white dalek story to be honest the first half's quite strong and then everything from them breaking out of the dalek cell feels weird there's there's a choppiness suddenly to the editing like everything feels slightly disjointed and for some reason, they suddenly just turn up the music to like full Murray Gold times 10 volume. And to the point where I was a bit like, what it reminded me of was, I think in like the oh, mid 90s, I remember picking up 
a copy of Metrop- Metropolis on uh, VHS or something. And there's been various copies of that. And this had some weird kind of soft rock 80s soundtrack. Um, oh, yeah. That's right. Was, I have that somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. a soundtrack, yeah. Possibly, yeah. And, and it was just a bit... And now I look and I think, oh, yeah. And it was a bit like that, but the, but obviously this isn't a silent film. Um, so that was odd. Um it, it, it just felt distracting. I found the music really distracting and um, slightly. The music sounded in some ways more dated than the, um, the, the than, than the episode. Is the best way I could put it. It had a kind of strong '80s synth vibe, which is normally absolutely my sort of thing. But it felt a weird clash, and yeah, I found it very jumpy that second half. And and also, I mean, other people have joked about this, but it got to a point where it felt like they were flashing back. To like, do you remember this thing? Flashback. Yes, I literally saw that five minutes ago. I know we joke about kids having no attention span, but I'm pretty certain they can remember what they saw like yeah. five, 10 minutes ago. Um, I, you know, I, I, it just, I think it's a bit, and, and to be honest, this might be because I'm always a little bit, whenever there's a trailer for new dot, for new collection box set and they always go, and you look at, they, they do all the extras and you're like, oh, this is, this is, yeah, this looks good. Or this documentary looks good, this interview. And then they go, and we added new CGI effects to Horror Fang Rock. And I'm always like, great, why? And I think it's just because I, I find like, I, I don't know, maybe it's just a personal thing. It's just when, when they do those CGI effects, there's always a sense of, for me, but see, cheap, cheapish CGI, CGI effects on a 70s film set really don't match. And I just felt like, like the second half of the, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but the second half of the Daleks felt like a trailer for the whole thing. And I think maybe they had an extra, add an extra 10 or 20 minutes to the end, let it breathe a bit. Because this is always, you can edit it, but it's always 60s TV. It's slower paced. It's acted yeah. differently. It's shot differently. It's lit differently. And you can add modern editing to that, but it's still a bit of a disjoint for me. So obviously we can quibble about editing choices and music yeah. and sound effect choices, but let me ask you this. If you had never seen the Daleks before, if you had never seen the black and white seven-part edit, if you were coming to this as a new viewer, would the 70-minute cutdown make you understand why the Daleks are so important to the show history and so beloved? And would the ethical debate that makes up the backbone of the story still work for you if you had only seen this 70-minute Edit with the colorization and the dated special effects and the surfeit of music. I guess that's, that's a more important question for me than did the special effects work? Uh, I mean, that's in some ways I'm just going to be guessing because obviously, like I say, it's, it's not the, the Daleks as a black and white story isn't one I watch a lot, but it's one I'm very familiar with. In fact, actually, I was thinking about it today and I realized I first encountered the story of the David Whitaker novelization. I was trying to remember when I first, I think I saw that and then I saw the Peter Cushing film and then I saw yeah so saw that I, I don't know I, I I like I said I'm not the target audience for this like in many ways it's you know it's it's I, I don't mind them doing it I want to make that clear I'm not like oh they shouldn't have done this but I'm just kind of coming into it I was just I mean they do leave those the the the, the, the debate in um so yeah maybe that would work I, I'm not saying I'm not saying the debate doesn't work uh the, yeah, the ethical yeah you know, question at the, at the core of the story. Um, I do though, just want to add the idea of the war games in color 
cut down really saddens me because we spent for years in my time in fandom war games were sort of like the overly long story that was only had a good episode and then in the last what 12 15 years since they released the dvd everyone's gone oh no this is actually beautifully paced and edited and and is really yeah. entertaining yeah. and I, I i love the war it's like one of my favorite stories so the thought of it like cut down to 17 minutes makes me very sad um but yeah <laughs> I, I i'm not against them doing this i i I, did, I, I find it interesting. I find it interesting in the sense that when the VHS range first came out in this country, they were all edited versions of the story. They were all cut down to, I think, an hour, um, that about the same similar length of time. And obviously, it was a big thing when they finally released the full, full length versions. And now we're going back to like, oh, maybe we should go back to the edited versions. But yeah, it, I, I find I find it an interesting thought experiment. But I don't know if it really worked for me. Is is what I'm rambling about, basically. I mean, you both raised some really good points there. And obviously, the editing has been done by Benjamin Cook, who's probably best known as a writer for Doctor Who magazine. And kind of like when it was announced that he was doing it, kind of like was like raised my eyebrow a bit and thought, why aren't they getting like a, a more professional editor getting in? But obviously, I'm aware that Benjamin Cook has a, a very big YouTube channel. He's done a lot of things on YouTube. He, he's experienced as editing. But... Um, I jotted down a couple of um, timings when I was re-watching it earlier today. So the first episode is cut down to 10 minutes. You know, so they take away like 15 minutes out and it's, it's very brisk, it works. And then you've got the second episode, which is edited down for 16 minutes. So that loses nine minutes out of its 25-minute um, original duration. Then when you calculate that, it means you've got 49 minutes left of this 75-minute duration to cram in the remaining five episodes, which is like, you know, almost another, like, two... It's almost two hours of material, and I think that that's quite a challenge. And, yeah, you get to a point where it does get very, very choppy. The, the first, like, you know, bits where they edit down the... Up until, like you'd probably say, the you know the episode three part, you know it, it's it's very good. It's condensed. It's moving the story along. It's quite quick. You know, it, it's going at that modern pace. But then it just starts like ramping up, and it is like watching the story a little bit on fast forward. But is that us coming to that because we're used to watching the seven part story? Um, but I'm also obviously you've got the comparison because we've already got a cut-down version of this story, haven't we, in Doctor Who and the Daleks, the Peter Cushing film, which is around about, I think, 82 minutes long. So not much longer than this. And it didn't... This new version seemed a lot more choppily like, done than the original like movie version from 1965. What do you think about with the comparisons between this and the Peter Cushing movie, Adam? Well, I, I guess it's easier when technically the, the Cushing movie was written from scratch again, based on the on obviously obviously based on the serial, but they could they weren't having to take the existing and chop it down. I think that's a big part of it as well. You know, they could. Yeah, I think I think that's the main difference is they were able to start. From from the beginning again with with the Cushing movie. I mean, I I, I love the, the Cushing movies. Um, again, they're, they're one of these nice things that's got a bit of a reevaluation in fandom during my time. From they were you know seen as lesser, and now they're very much like enjoyed and accepted. Um, 
And I think there is part of me that thinks, well, if I had to show someone like the first Dalek story, I if I wanted to show them a, a colour uh, shorter version, I part of me thinks the Cushing version might be it doesn't have it doesn't like it doesn't have that slightly choppy element, but yeah, I, maybe it's not fair to compare it because of. But I, I also like the, the thought that the, the, I think somebody was joking about it when they announced this originally that they'll take the Cushing movies now, put them in black and white, and slow them down to about three hours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think if 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 I was going to pick one to watch, yeah, just casually, yeah, I'd go for the Cushing movie. Definitely, better soundtrack. What about you, Jason? I mean, the original seven episode edit. And then the Cushing movie are two entirely different things with two entirely different points being broadcast to two entirely different audiences. The Cushing movie is bright and colorful, and the Thals are wearing lots of makeup and glitter, and they appear to be extras from a Kesha music video circa 2012. (laughs) We're basically watching the video for – and I'm blanking here on the name of the song, Blow. It's, it's basically the music video for Blow with lots of glitter and dirt. So also you lose a lot of the morality of the original. The original is we need to fight the Nazis, but how long can we fight the Nazis before we become Nazis ourselves? The Thals have to be coaxed and persuaded into fighting, and the Doctor is still the antagonist at this point in the show history, so it's Ian who has to lead the way. And there's some really crackling, sizzling debates in the 1963-64 original. Whereas the Cushing movie is a color spectacle and it's funny and it's cute, but it doesn't have the same dramatic heft. It's more of a special effects showcase. This cut down is trying to honor the spirit of the original and is not trying to honor the spirit of the Cushing movie. So there's four scenes in isolation worth talking about. Number one, they retain the episode two cliffhanger. That's a mistake. The episode one cliffhanger is Dalek terrorizing Barbara. That's a great cliffhanger. The second cliffhanger is Susan being scared by a thunderclap. That's literally the cliffhanger. I'm not even making this up if you haven't seen it. Susan is about to walk outside the TARDIS. There's a thunderclap and a burst of lightning, and she jumps and is terrified, and that's the cliffhanger moment. I mean – that should have been entirely <laughs> removed. There's no way that should have been kept in in the year 2024. But again, it, it adheres to the spirit of the original, so I can see why it's there. Secondly, there is a scene somewhere in the part three or four material before Temesis is killed, so episode four. They drop the TV dialogue and they write this new TV dialogue from scratch. So instead of Susan coming in and writing a letter and the Daleks – not understanding the word Susan and Susan laughing, the Daleks have the idea themselves, you know, we will use the girl to write a treaty and then we will exterminate the Thals. I then did a word search on the transcript. The word exterminate does not appear in the original version of the Daleks, the seven part story. So they wrote this new scene for the original because when you think of Daleks, you think of the word exterminate. You don't say one without the other, but it's not in the original at all. That came later. So they added a new scene to write that in. And that's terrific. Um, Thirdly, the episode five and six material, that's what Adam was talking about earlier, is the weaker part of the story. 
that's been entirely diminished. I have seven minutes for the episode five material and eight minutes for the episode six material. So they have cut down five and six into basically as long as the episode two or as long as the episode three material runs. They front loaded the Dalek stuff and they've removed a lot of the Flash Gordon style stuff from the assault through the caves. So the character of Elion, who barely registers on TV, is hardly even in this one at all. So mm. I don't think he I think he gets one line of dialogue. He's just there to die. And there's a terrible scene in episode six where Ganatus and Antidus start fighting and they cause a rock fall. That's been taken out, thankfully. So that improves the narrative flow. <laughs> So with the exception of the episode two cliffhanger being left in where Susan is terrified by a clap of thunder, and I'm sure Caroline Ford does not appreciate having to do that. I'm, I'm sure she still resents having to act that 60 years later. Other than that, the editing choices made really make this more like the original story rather than the Cushing movie, which is a light comedy with lots of dazzling effects and pretty makeup. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would probably yeah agree. Um, yeah, it it is like it's it's its own beast, isn't it? It's it's not trying to mimic the Peter Cushing uh, movie, and like you say, Adam, it's something that was written completely like you know from scratch again by David Whittaker, and obviously he's doing his spin on the story. Um, obviously, it does touch up on the editing, and I, I obviously noticed it, and it's done a couple of times. It's not really done in the first like half of this story but there is um and it's a modern trend that you get a lot either in drama or also in documentaries that i've seen as well as like literally they do a flashback to something that you have just seen and the the best example is um literally when um ian is about to obviously he's in the dalek no, no, sorry. No, he's, um, it's when the files are going into the city and obviously they're not aware that it's a Dalek trap. Ian's hiding in the shadows, um, about to warn them that obviously, you know, the Daleks have other intentions than making peace with the files. And then obviously you get Ian shouting out, you know, the Daleks come out, there's lot, lot, lots of extermination rays, you see like some files killed and obviously they then escape. Then it cuts to, obviously, a very, very quick, abrupt cut of them talking about that in the jungle. And you literally, and I think I timed it, it's like less than a minute from seeing that scene, you then get a flashback of that scene. And I'm just thinking, I know you've designed this for the modern audience, and, and there is that, obviously that joke that modern audiences like just don't have the attention span anymore because... You know, they're addicted to TikTok or whatever, but surely that's just overkill. <laughs> I mean, did anybody else, like, get thrown out of it with those kind of, like, you know, use of flashbacks for something that's still, you know, it's a very condensed version of the story. Do you really need those flashbacks um, so often in um, a 75-minute um, episode? Jason? I think we have two different questions here. Number one, are we talking about quibbles, things that we would have done differently had we been in the editing booth instead of Benjamin Cook? Or are we asking if this works as produced and is it a good idea to make more of these in the future with other black and white Doctor Who stories of six episodes or more that a modern audience is never going to finish? Uh, yeah, I think if I were in the editing booth, I would have done – a little less flashback. Let's compare two movies. Let's compare the Baz Luhrmann Elvis movie. 
It's a great movie, up for many Oscars last year. Yep. If you watch it and count, the camera never holds a shot for more than a four count. Every two or three seconds, the camera shifts to an end of the shot. The movie is constantly jumping around. And I imagine that if you have a convulsive disorder, this is going to trigger you because the camera never stays still and the lights are always flickering. Then you have Zone of Interest, which is a movie about Auschwitz, and it's one of the 10 Best Picture nominees for next month's March 2024's Academy Awards ceremony. This is a movie that is very long, still camera angles. It forces you to think. The camera stays still for minutes at a time. And you are forced to think about why are we watching the scene for so long? What is going on in the character's mind? You engage differently when it's fast editing versus when it's very slow and deliberately editing. The original production of the Dallas, because of the way it's made, is more like the more like the zone of interest. Very slow editing, deliberately paced. They're trying to create a more modern Baz Luhrmanny version of the Daleks. I think this will work better for a modern audience. I think the fast editing is important. So they turn long scenes on TV into montages. I think it's a good idea. Would I not have done a flashback when we saw the first scene 45 seconds earlier? No, I wouldn't have done that. But I think in principle, what they did is a good idea. And I hope we see more of it in the future, if that answers your question. So I both agree and disagree with you at the same time. That's fine. Adam, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think that's the first time anyone's ever compared anything Terry Nation wrote to Zone of Interest. Um, but, <laughs> 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 oh, Baz Luhrmann, actually, yeah, which is maybe the more surprising one. Um, I think, and by the way, you should absolutely edit in flashbacks in this podcast of stuff we said like 30 seconds ago, just to um, <laughs> keep oh, it <laughs> um, I'll leave it in for Mark to do that. <laughs> uh, I, I wondered there was a practical reason for it. I was thinking about this, whether it was something done out of necessity, not out of like, oh, the audience won't remember this, but covering something? I, I don't know, because you're right, that that particularly that um that that one you mentioned of, of about the, the Thals, you know, flashing back to death their leader we saw, yeah, like you say, like a minute ago, that really stuck out again today when I rewatched it. I was like, Yeah, my god, that 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 felt like it almost felt like a parody. Um, but I, I keep I keep trying to work out. Yeah, I I keep trying to work out why. Like, is is was it cutting a particular? Was, was it covering something? Was, was yeah? You know, I it wasn't cut it covering like gaps between scenes. But I just keep thinking there must have been some kind of practical reason for it because, like you said, it is it is jarring. Um, and you know, because mod again, we we, we keep uh, saying you know how this is to get for people into modern Doctor Who into this. Modern Doctor Who doesn't tend to have that many flashbacks. Like occasionally they'll have one episode or something, but it's they generally rely on the audience remembering what they saw. So yeah, I it, I found it jarring, but I I keep trying to think. I don't know if Ben Cook's done an interview about this or anything, but if there's a particular reason for that, if there's if it's like I said, Mikey, I keep thinking there's a practical reason it must be covering for something, but I can't figure out what. I think is what I'm trying to say. I think I think Ben has mentioned this. I think it's it's it was done, or apparently the intention was for when they had to cut away, and then there was there's not an actual natural cut in the scene, right? For them to use, they've then used that example of like sticking in the flashback, which is then like kind of like then enables them to cut away 
and shorten the particular scene that they're in to give them like the kind of like dialogue that they want because obviously there's no natural section at all in that scene for them to do the cut. So I think that was the rationale behind it. But like you say, it does kind of like make it jump out. And certainly when it's done like in in less than a minute, it's kind of like, well, hold on. you, Yeah, I'm not stupid. You literally just showed me that scene like, you know, a minute ago. Yeah, that that makes sense. Because like I said, it's just you watching it thinking this is, I did think this isn't an artistic decision. This is, and that makes sense. This is something to cover, something that's in the original footage or lack of something. That's interesting. I'd be... I'd be curious to to see a comparison of where those cuts happen and what what the original thing cuts to, because I I don't know the episode well enough to be able to go, oh, that's covering that. But I'd be very curious to see what it, without the flashback, what it would have looked like. So as well as obviously we've got the the new of the the story edited down to, you know, essentially it's like condensed element. We've got the new soundtrack by Mark Ayres, uh, which I thought, again, it's another one of, uh, a tale of two halves. Uh, I thought it was better in the first half of the story than the second half of the story. Like you, you said, Adam, it kind of like ramps up and gets turned up, like you know, halfway through the story. I thought <clears throat> certainly the material covering the first two episodes is very atmospheric. It's very kind of like um, similar to the tone of the original two episodes, which don't really have a soundtrack. They just have the ambience yeah. of the Dalek city as they're walking through it. Um, but then, um, obviously, it kind of goes like very synth, kind of like I have seen it written in a couple of reviews. It almost goes like a, a bit Keith McCulloch from yes, uh, the <laughs> um, Good okay. But there's, there's some little... Rewatching it again, there's some little like kind of like homages that I noticed. Um, for instance, that that Dalek attack is, um, and the Dalek escape when Ian's in the Dalek as well, and they're escaping through the elevator. Um, the music is almost, I thought it was very Barry Gray esque, as in um, the composer of like um, Jerry Anderson shows like Thunderbirds and um, Captain Scarlet. So it's still kind of like giving it that 60s feel before it then like kind of kicks in and it goes a little bit far to like 80s towards like the end of the episode. What did um, what did you think of the, the music, Adam? Um, yeah, I, it's funny you mentioned Kef because there was one moment watching it I thought, isn't that from Remembrance? Like there was a couple of moments, a couple of synth stabs that I was a bit like, oh, that sounds really familiar. Um yeah, it, it felt. I think one of the great things about sixties dot two uh, soundtracks, and it, you know, it's there in the in the in the opening title, is how weird they are. And like you say, that they're very. They're sometimes they're not music. Sometimes they're special sound, um, as you say, and it is that kind of deeply kind of atmospheric ambient sound. And it's it was a bit of a shame to lose that. Um, yeah, it was it, it was just so odd the way it just changed in the second half. I couldn't quite get. It, it, again, it felt a bit. It, it kind of, it kind of shook me out of the story a bit because it felt like somebody had suddenly gone. Oh, we, we had the music fader turned down all the way. Quick, pop it back up, and then no. But it felt suddenly quite overwhelming, in a way that even like people always joke about, and I joked earlier about Murray Gold, you know, music being loud in Modern Dot Two, but everything else is often at the same level, so it feels more part of it. This felt like a little bit like somebody who was just playing their CD of like. 
CD of music next to me while I was watching <laughs> watching Doctor Who. Like I didn't think the music itself was bad, but it just again tonally it it kind of clashed a bit for me. And yeah, it was just, it was just so odd how it suddenly just kicked up again. It's that second half thing where it just suddenly just and again it's that it's that it's that Dalek escape. I think uh, that when they escape from the Daleks the first time, really, and in the Dalek, you're suddenly like, yeah, it feels like they've just suddenly just turned it on. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I'm a big fan of Kev McCullough, personally. I, I actually really adore his stuff, dated though it is, so I probably didn't just like it as much as some people. <laughs> what about you, Jason? <laughs> well, Adam is from the Real McCoy podcast, so if yeah. we're talking about Kev McCulloch and Remembrance of the Daleks, it's literally right up his alley. <laughs> True. I'm going to default back to my previous answer because it worked so well the first time comparing Baz Luhrmann with Jonathan Glazer. If you watch the Elvis movie, there is never a time when there is not music playing in the background. There is no silence in the movie. It is two and a half hours of wall-to-wall music on top of the frequent every three-second camera cuts. Whereas with Zone of Interest, Jonathan Glazer has said there's two movies. There's the movie that you're watching, which is the characters walking around the house, interacting and arguing and talking. The real movie is the soundscape from Auschwitz over the wall. You never see inside the camp, but you hear the sounds constantly with the screams and the burning and and the gunshots. That's the real movie. The, the, The background ambient noise underneath the dialogue is the actual movie, and everything else is a distraction. With the original Daleks, we're talking about Tristram Carey. It is an ambient soundscape, like Adam says. It's not music. It's Mm -hmm. disconcerting sounds, and it worked so well that the Tristram Carey soundtrack to the Daleks is not just the soundtrack to the Daleks, but it's used seven or eight more times throughout the rest of the 60s, often to diminishing effect. What works very well in the Daleks is not going to work quite so well in the Ark, for example, but it's, it's the exact same soundtrack. So here you have this push-pull. You have that ambient soundtrack retained for us older fanboys, but the rest of it is a little bit of the Baz Luhrmann epic. The shot on Ian when he's inside the Dalek shell in the Episode 3 material, like Adam says, and also from my notes, the attack on Temesis and the Dalek ambush over the food in the Episode 4 material, that is given a very rock and roll soundtrack. And then when there's all those inspirational speeches in episode five, when Ian is trying to stir the Thales to fight, it's kind of like the movie, the King's speech. The music gets so loud and telling you how to feel that you can actually, you can't actually hear the underlying dialogue. For me, I prefer ambient noise and silence. So for me, I prefer the soundscape of the original to this soundscape. I'm not crazy about the rock and roll. If I'm somebody's giving a speech, I don't need to hear I don't need to hear loud music drowning it out, telling me how to think. I want to hear the words. Um, so again, if I were in the editing booth, I would have had Mark Ayers tone it down a bit. But that's a nitpick. Does it work for a modern audience? I think a modern audience is going to expect that kind of soundscape. So I think it's a good idea, even if I would not have done it that way were I in charge. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Good points there from both of you. Okay, so let's come to the the major crux of the whole um, project, uh, which is the colorization. And I have a very interesting um, quote here. I'll be interested if Jason can actually recognize this quote. The quote goes, The last time I checked, I owned the films 
that were colorized. I can do whatever I want with them, and if they're going to be shown on television, they're going to be shown in color. Jason, do you know who that quote's from? That, if I didn't know better, that almost sounds like the self-entitlement and overweening arrogance of one Steph Coburn. But clearly it's not because he would not own the films. In that case, there's only one other person when you're talking about overweening arrogance. If it's not Steph Coburn, it has to be Ian Levine. It isn't. It isn't. It is actually from the guy who probably started this whole craze back in the 1980s. It is from the media mogul Ted Turner who made those comments in October 1986. Uh. (laughs) <laughs> when uh, a lot of cinephiles were up in arms about him colorizing like um, old black and white movies. So I just thought that was a, an, um, quite an apt um, quote to use. And just going back to something that you said, Jason, earlier on in uh, the podcast, obviously you said from um, your 13-year-old daughter's point of view, she has difficulty with uh, you know any material that's black and white. Um, and like you know filmed like many many years ago and it um, reminded me of the time when um, I showed my son uh, the original 1933 version of King Kong for the very first time and I think he was about eight years or nine years old and his first comments were why is it not in color and obviously I had to kind of like come up with a brief explanation and just say that well you know not many films were filmed in color you know back in the when this was made um it was very expensive to use and obviously most films were filmed in black and white once he had that explanation he was then more or less wrapped up in the story and um after that he has watched a couple of other black and white films probably most notably um Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, um, which was made in 1960. And again, he, he didn't question that it was, uh, wasn't was in colour. Um, and obviously, I wasn't ever going to show him the Gus Van Sant um, hideous 1998 remake <laughs> <laughs> with Vince Vaughn. Um, so obviously, because this has been made for a modern audience, are we doing a modern audience a disservice by um, colorizing the material. Jason. One of my favorite horror comedies, and I'm on a roll with film references today. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to go for it, man. <laughs> well, the it's movie, near the season, so you might as well. <laughs> the movie Gremlins 2, the, the new batch, it is a sequel to Gremlins, but it is superior in just about every way, except that Hoyt Axton's character is missing, and he was the best thing about the original. It takes place in a New York City skyscraper, and the bad guy in the film, whose name is Clamp, is literally a mashup of Ted Turner and a New York City real estate mogul who happened to be named Donald Trump. No idea whatever happened to him. Yeah, Donald Trump is literally the bad guy in Gremlins 2. The comedy in the first half of the movie is that this skyscraper is totally in the Ted Turner, Donald Trump mentality. So the Clamp character owns a TV station like Ted Turner. He shows old movies like Ted Turner. He colorizes old movies like Ted Turner. So as one of the characters is walking through the cars of the building, you can hear the building PA in the background go, tonight on the Clamp Network, Casablanca, 
in color and with a happier ending. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's another gag where Zach Galligan takes Gizmo into the men's room. And as he walks in, you hear a John Wade impersonator go, Mr. Welcome to the men's room, which that has been living in my head rent free for the last 30 years. And I can't say the word men's room without hearing Mr. Welcome to the men's room. (laughs) But yeah, the point is that movie is making fun of the urge to colorize everything and sanitize everything. That is a movie that references lots of classic horror. Christopher Lee is literally in the movie, has a pretty major part. Robert Prosky is playing Al Lewis, who played Grandpa Munster. So Robert Prosky playing Al Lewis is <laughs> really an interesting choice. You have this very serious actor playing a TV comedian. Um, it's a great movie, by the way, in case you couldn't tell from my discussion of it. <sighs> so, yeah, I prefer the black and white. I think the colorization is there for the modern audience because modern Doctor Who is in color. There is the occasional black and white moment. And this story does a clever thing where they keep the first 45 seconds in black and white before they have the color come in, the same way the two Doctors does. But if you are a modern audience and all you all you know is the, is the new series and you're not really familiar with the classic series – I think the color is good for you. And the Steelbook is going to have both. You'll be able to have all seven black and white episodes and the color. I'll tell you an example that fooled me. In the run-up to the episode six cliffhanger, Antidus is trying to get a running leap to jump across the chasm, and he misses, and he starts to drag Ian down with him. There is a shot in the color version that I was convinced was created anew using CGI and a new actor. Antidus gets a running start, and the camera is shot from ground level between his legs, and you can see Ian framed in Antidus's legs, kind of like Dustin Hoffman and Anne Bancroft in The Graduate. (laughs) I was convinced that was a new CGI scene created only for the color edition because it looks so modern and it looks so good. This can't have been in the original. There's just no way. So I paused my... um, acquired copy of the BBC iPlayer release. And I went to my original version of the docs. It's actually there. That was actually done live in studio in 1964. That's actually real. They actually had the camera at ground level between Antidus's legs shooting at Ian, but it was so good. I thought it was a color creation, but yeah. So in other words, the color works so well that I was convinced that parts of this were made in color anew in 2023 to be inserted into the original. That's interesting, that isn't it? You know that obviously, you know, it's a story that we're so used to watching, but even then, with a fresh, like, kind of like, essentially, no pun intended, coat of paint over it, you then get the impression that you know that wasn't in the original version. And it was. I don't know how they did that in 1964, but it's actually there. But it looks so good in color. Well, that that episode would have been Richard Martin, wouldn't it, rather than yeah. Christopher Curry? Yeah, who, who? Yeah, because he took over directing after the. First four episodes, didn't they? The much maligned Richard Martin did one of the most brilliant shots in 1960s Doctor Who. So how about that? Yeah, yeah. Scored for him. Uh, Adam, so what was your thoughts on on the colorization? Did it take you out of the story? Did you thought it was well done? Um, 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 Do you like colorized black and white projects? I am now just thinking of a colorized Casablanca with a Kef McCulloch soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) 
and a happier ending. <laughs> happier ending. Yeah. Um, I mean, generally, my again, I don't mind that they they colorized it, but generally, my thoughts of if something's shot in black and white and it was always intended to be in black and white, I'd rather see it in black and white. That's a personal choice. I thought the colorization was okay. It would have been somebody pointed out. This is a good point. It would be interesting to see on later sixties dot two when they increased the um the like the I want to call it the line count when when, when the image line quality, yeah right line went up because it does, lines up. Yeah, yeah because early dot two looks always looks slightly fuzzy and the colorization I think made it look a little more fuzzy. It wasn't the the image wasn't as sharp um as it was and there were some interesting choices. I mean was. Was Barbara's uh, cardigan really that pink on set? <laughs> it was genuinely. It was a bit like the sixth. The sixth doctor would have gone. That's a bit much. I feel occasionally because it was. I genuinely found it a bit distracting every time it came on. It's like, oh my god, it's still uh, as solid. I mean, I yeah, I don't mind. I think it's fine. I I get that again. Black and white is now. If you make a film now with black and white in, it's usually seen as an artistic decision. Like um. T- We've been talking about films a lot, but I, I saw uh, Poor Things uh, a couple of weeks back, mm. and that starts in black and white. And there's there's a moment where it flips to color, and it's obviously thematically there's a reason why it flips to color. Um, so I, I I guess yeah I I don't mind the colorization. I will always prefer to watch things in black and white. Um, it's it's a bit interesting when you think of the uh, 60s animations because obviously they now always do a color and a black and white version of the the animations. Now I will yeah, watch yeah. the color version of that. Uh, because that has been made, they you know they always say they start off in the color version, so that's always been made in the color. I usually watch the color first, and then I watch the black and white. Um, but if it's been you know, originally shot and filmed in black and white, I do prefer black and white. But I thought the colors, yeah, I thought the colorization was fine. It, like I said, it was a little fuzzy, but that may have just been the original footage quality um, in the first place. And you know, now I'm watching it on like a big widescreen TV and not like. A tiny 60s television so yeah i mean it's interesting obviously if we're keeping up the uh, the movie references like oppenheimer's another one that has like quite a large mm, uh, number yeah. of scenes that are in black and white as well as well as obviously you know the the main color scenes but um i obviously watching this earlier today and i did a little um bit of a not really a survey but i asked uh, my fiance her what her thoughts were and she hadn't seen uh, this story, um, whenever I put classic Doctor Who on, she kind of like runs a mile and leaves a like a cloud of dust like in the living room, like you know, <laughs> something else. She loves modern Doctor Who, but she really can't get into the classic kind of stuff. And I just said, "Oh, just give us your opinions uh, as it was on. What do you think? You know, does how does that look?" And she was like, "What?" She was like, "Is there something wrong with the color? Or what's wrong with their faces?" And I was like. Yeah, okay. She said, the Daleks look amazing. The backgrounds look amazing. And I think they did. And, and it was great to see the TARDIS set as well with its blue mm. floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I realised that the floor was blue. Um, that looked fantastic as well. But she said like there was something off with, obviously, and it's been a common thing, I think, ever since they started to colourise movies uh, in the 1980s, that the flesh tones were a lot better than some of those versions that you get from years ago. Um, but they're still not quite there. And she was like, oh, it, it, it's it's not quite right. It's, it's taking me out of 
what I'm seeing. I'm not quite able to concentrate. And she did make a very good point because it was the scenes when um, William Hartnell's doctor was obviously being interrogated by the Daleks. And she said it looked to her eyes as if they hadn't bothered to colorize his hair because it's grey hair and it's in black and white and he's like, let's colourise the rest of it but we don't have to even do anything with the hair. She said his hairline and his grey hair just looked as if it hadn't been touched up at all. <laughs> so that's, that was her take on the uh, the colourisation. It would be interesting to compare well, it to um, the, the Pertwee episodes that they re, they, they've restored but that yeah. is obviously slightly different because they're often they're taking at least some information uh, you know, they they they've restored various ones. In I'm thinking Mind, Mind of Evil, particularly, which I had a, as a black and white release on VHS, and obviously have had it on color. But that's I I I suspect they had a bit more of a budget for that, and that's a longer release. But I think those are generally slightly better. Like I'm really curious to see when Ambassadors of Death comes out on Blu-ray if they've improved the colorization on that because that what they did was good, but that was again you can see that colorization and also invasion of the dinosaurs episode one as well which they yeah uh, they've never been quite happy with how they got that yeah isn't it? yeah so yeah i mean at least there you've got like a, i mean i don't i still to this day don't understand how they do it there's, there's a color signal in the black and white image that they're able to then kind of take out and then with the use of computers then touch up and almost make it look as as good as it did when it was first broadcast um yeah, Jason, sorry. Yeah, so Jim Sangster and I have discussed this over on Doctor Who Literature. When we watch a colorized thing like The Mind of Evil or Invasion of the Dinosaurs, the original is gone. We're watching a reconstruction. We're watching a black-and-white kinescope of color videotape, and it's doubly transferred. They have to use vidfire to turn the film back into the original video, and they have to retrieve the chroma dots – which is what you get on the screen when a black and white film camera is pointing at a color monitor. Then they have to retrieve the color out of that. So you're not looking at something that has the richness of videotape. You're watching colorized film of videotape. And then let's talk about black and white as an artistic choice. Adam broke my brain, which is why I haven't spoken in the last 10 minutes. When he talked about poor things, all I can imagine is the Daleks turning into poor things and being – Susan's sexual awakening as she works her way first through the male members of the cast and then realizes she's happier with females. Oh, my God. All right, so now I'm going to have to wash my brain out with very stringent soap, and I'm not going to be able to think for the rest of the day. So thanks, Adam. That's all right. If it makes it any weirder, I, I watched it in a cinema full of dogs. But that's <laughs> <laughs> well, what? The, the, the cinema near us was having like a dog-friendly screening, so we took our dog alone oh, right. they were all very well behaved i just want to say that you wouldn't most of them just went to sleep like we took our little dog in he curled up he started sleep barking during the film at one point he was asleep but um yeah so it was slightly surreal but very good film i loved it but yeah the fact that you have both the green goblin and the hulk from the marvel movies both in a modern day retelling of frankenstein that is half black and white and is done as a uh, sexual exploration with lots of explicit content one of the strangest casting ideas of all time. Let's take two MCU characters and put them in this art house movie. <laughs> but, oh, and uh, Emma Stone was Cruella de Vil in a Disney film, speaking of Disney. so And she was Gwen Stacy in the Spider-Man films as well. Oh, that's right. That's right. 
a lot of a lot of Spider-Man going on. So let's yeah. talk about Oppenheimer. I was a little bit late to this recording because I was coming back from the gym, and there are New York City subway service cuts this weekend, so I had to backtrack and go the long way around. I listened to the entire recent episode of the Script Notes podcast where they interviewed Christopher Nolan about the process of researching and writing the script for Oppenheimer and then filming it. And he made the conscious decision to do the movie half in color, half in black and white. The future is – or the present is in black and white and the past is in color. So the movie is told in two tracks, fission and fusion. So the fusion part is Oppenheimer developing the bomb and testing it. That's color. Fission is the hearings, the closed-door hearing about his security clearance, and then the Senate hearing, the confirmation of Robert Downey Jr.'s character. So half color, half black and white as an artistic choice. When you are Christopher Nolan, you can do that. Um, This movie, this movie version of the Daleks kind of plays with that because the first scene is in black and white, and that's great, and then the rest of it is in color. But it's not nearly of the artistry level of a Poor Things or an Oppenheimer. So those are comparisons that don't quite match the material that we're working with. So if the question is, does the color work as an artistic choice, I think it does. And if you take something like War Games, which is a black and white video of vibrant color sets, the DVD text commentary for the War Games tells you, if you were in studio, you would have seen incredible colors. I would love to see a colorized version of the War Games for exactly that reason. Maybe the Invasion, too. I'd like to know if the silver Cyberman costumes in the Invasion pop on screen the way they do in something like Revenge of the Cybermen instead of just watching the black and white. I think that answers your question. There are some big rumours that the War Games is going to be one of the uh, upcoming ones. And, you know, Russell T. Davies has said there is work being done on um, more of these colorizations. So, obviously, uh, Rich Tipple, who led the team uh, doing this, has, has done a wonderful job, you know. Um, you know, And, for like you say, for the age of the material that he's working with and his team are working with, um, overseen by Phil Collinson, um, they've done a tremendous job. Yeah, you know, they've taken some liberties here and there. You know, obviously we've got colour photos of the, the Dalek control room and, you know, the panels and the, you know, the, the things on the wall weren't as bright as what they are in this version, but obviously they've done that to just put a little bit of extra colour into, um, you know, the scenes. And, you know, and it, it does work. Um, so, yeah, Um so moving into that, obviously, of what we would like to see going forward, there's a great little montage at the end of this when obviously the TARDIS leaves and then it says, and then the, obviously uh, whatever the caption is, I can't quite remember it, and the adventure continues. And then we get this kind of like minute montage of um, coloured-rised scenes from mainly the Mil- William Hartnell era, but then we've got a tantalising um snippet of St. Patrick Troughton at the end. Now, one of the key scenes that's in there is the colourised scene that was in the giggle between the Celestial Toymaker and the First Doctor. And and you've got, obviously, Dalek Invasion of Earth, there's Web Planet, there's um, Dalek's Master Plan. Um, I think there's some two of the Cybermen in there, and I think there is. The, that final shot of Troughton, I believe, might actually be from... Uh, the war games, you can see the clearer resolution mm. 
because obviously that was filmed on six two five lines right. rather than four oh five. So what um stories would we like to see going forward? Well, we've already talked about the war games. I've mentioned the invasion. I'm gonna give a third nominee. The Mind Robber. Yes. Paul Cornell, back when I was back when I was a subscriber to his blog, did this Christmas series, this is about 10 or 11 years ago, talking about his favorite bits of Doctor Who, One a Day for Christmas. And he did this really incredible post about the mind robber. And he says, the mind robber is not black and white. The mind robber is gray and silver. So there are so many moments in the mind robber that would work so well if we had a color video look rather than a black and white filmic look. You're talking about that void in the beginning. Yeah. We're talking about Zoe's silver cat suit. We're talking about the red on the Clockwork Soldiers. We're talking about the Carcass, who is a MCU-style character. He must have some interesting colors on his costume. We're talking about Zoe's silver cat suit. We're talking about the end of the Mind Robber is a montage of battles between all these historical figures like D'Artagnan and Blackbeard. We're talking about Zoe's silver cat suit. I think the mind robber would be incredible as a color. I think it would blow the mind of the audience. And if we could just see Zoe's silver cat suit in color, I could die with a smile on my face when the good Lord asked me how things were going back on Earth. <laughs> Adam? Um, I'd like to see the rescue cut down to five minutes with at least two flashbacks to Barbara murdering Sandy the Sand Beast. Um, no, um, it's a, That's it's a party foul because Jeff was supposed to be with us today and he couldn't make it because of computer trouble. The rescue is his favorite story. Yeah. So. Oh, I, I actually <laughs> really like it. I, I really like the rescue. That's, that wasn't meant as a dig at the rescue. Um, I'm just trying to think, I think it's, you know, the sad thing is I, I was going to, the stories I can think of, I like, I'd be curious to see colored. A lot of them don't actually exist anymore. Like you see, yeah. you see those photos of Marco Polo and you think, Oh, that would have been good in color. Like that, that would be one I could see doing well. So I'm going to say, <sighs> trouble with the Aztecs is it's a lot of white people playing those roles. So maybe not that. But maybe the Romans. Yeah. Like I think you get some good colors oh, yeah. in the Romans. I think I think generally, yeah. My 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 slight leaning is towards more the historicals to be to be colors because I think that I think I think that could be more interesting. So yeah, I'm going to say the Romans, and I think the Romans is a fun if you're going to introduce people to oh doctor i think romans is a good one because it is it is you know it it's it it is funny it's still funny i think it, it's comedy still works and yeah i think i think it would look oh, rome on a bbc budget in color would look good yeah and uh, i mean i would probably um uh, i'd agree with the mind robber i mean we do get a snippet of um a scene in color uh in that montage uh we also get a snippet of and i think it's filmed footage of the daleks on location um around um is it hyde park or, or one of the parks in london uh and that looks absolutely amazing in color so i'd love to see like a kind of like a cut down version colorized of the dalek invasion of earth if we're going to like you know continue and obviously we know dalek stories are winners with you know the general public as well um tomb of the cybermen i'd be interested to see because you've got that comparison of Obviously, they're very stark silver and like probably blue and icy sets, as well as the contrast of um, the. I think if I remember from the production photos, 
um, quite a vibrant um, control room before they go down into the tombs. And then obviously you've got the contrast with whatever the um, the supporting characters are wearing as well. So, you, you know, it wouldn't just be just a shield of like silver and blue and grey uh, if you're colorizing that episode. So I, I, think, I think that story would look uh, good as well. But yeah, I, I'm really interested to see what they've uh, got coming um, in the future. Okay, guys, so that wraps up the uh, podcast for The Daleks in Colour, which is available on DVD, Blu-ray, and a Steelbook Blu-ray, limited edition, on the 19th of February. That's the UK release. I'm not too sure when it's due to be released in the US, um, but it will probably be, as usually, uh, a couple of months after the UK release. So I hope we've whet your appetite if you've not yet seen it or if you want to now go out and buy it. So, guys, um, where can we uh, find you, and what are you currently up to? Adam? Well, you can find me on The Real McCoy Podcast, or Harry Sullivan's An Imbecile. They're both on a little bit of a hiatus at the moment, as I'm currently travelling a lot for work, and also in the process of buying a house. So that's kind of having to take priority and mental energy at the moment. But they will both be back Hopefully sooner rather than later, because hopefully the house paperwork will get sorted sooner rather than later. Um, so you can find me on those. Um, you can also find me, if if you're looking to talk to me, probably on socials, um, Blue Sky is probably best. And I'm just trying to remember what my thing on Blue Sky is. Yeah, adamclegg.bsky.social. You can find me on there. Okay. And uh, Jason? So... I am, my solo project is Doctor Who Literature. That is a weekly show. Uh, at the weekend that this episode drops, I will be at Gallifrey One in Los Angeles with Mark from Trap One. I, my last released episode as we record this is The Twin Dilemma with Grand Burke from Reality Bomb. Great episode, even if I do say so myself. And then the episode that I'll be recording at Galley as this episode drops is Galaxy 4, speaking of black and white stories with colorized editions available. Uh, Both of you guys have been on Doctor Who Lit several times in the past. Adam is coming up in about three months for the novelization of an episode that we talked about during today's Mm -hmm. recording. And Jason is a little bit further down on the calendar, but both of you guys are important parts of the show, so I'm looking forward to speaking to you Again, I've just followed Adam on Blue Sky as we were uh, talking. That's not me. I don't have the middle name Robert, so I don't know who you just followed. Oh, oh, that's oh not my goodness. Me. All right, I've unfollowed that. So <laughs> what's what's your username then? The username is Nitro9Milkshake. It's the one I had on, on Twitter, but the at's at adamclegg.bsky.social. I, I'm following you on there, so... Oh yeah, I've already, I'm already following you yeah, as a terms right. and, and some that's and somebody else completely. The other Adam that. must be very very confused <laughs> that I quickly unfollowed him. <laughs> I think we've all, all right. made that mistake before, though. <laughs> um, I am off the Bird app. I am only on Blue Sky, and my podcast is now on YouTube as well, although only as the podcast, and there's no actual video accompaniment the way that Jason has his own live YouTube channel. But I am on both servers at Doctor Who Novels. That's DR Who Novels. And you can find Doctor Who Literature on YouTube and any one of your podcatchers of choice. Fantastic. Um, I'm on YouTube as Bearded Geek Toy Reviews. I've just done a, a couple of uh, Doctor Who-related um, 
videos. One, customizing a Sylvester McCoy figure into a accurate TV movie uh, figure. And uh, the one that just went up today is a little snippet of the last Trap One podcast where we spoke to the Little Shop Props, where they demonstrate the Dalek gun, which is in the season 15 um, collection uh, trailer. And uh, so if you've not listened to that one, listen to that one as well. I'm still clinging to the dying embers of Twitter in the hope that uh, the man who owns it will shortly get fed up and bored and sell it as at Django Mac 72. And I'm also on Blue Sky as at Django Mac. So that's where you can find me. Okay, really going to be looking forward to the field report uh, that Jason and Mark are going to do uh, for Trap 1 and also Doctor Who uh, literature from Galley Base. So uh, we'll look forward to that. But in the meantime, thank you very much for listening and thank you for uh, joining us, Jason and Adam. And we will see you very, very soon on Trap 1 podcast. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>